Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about the book of 1 Samuel today. We talked a little bit about the beginning of this book in the last podcast after we finished the book of Ruth, but we spent so much time on Ruth that we felt like we could leave some of the things that might have been in that reading to this time. And they kind of fit appropriately to the the overall flow of the story. What we're getting in First Samuel is the lead up to David becoming king. And so this is basically the history of how it is that David succeeds Saul. So the book starts off with the birth of Samuel, the prophet, and how that comes to be. We talked about Hannah last time. Samuel grows up to be a prophet. He's also called a judge. And so he is in some sense the last judge in Israel. And he's that transitionary character that is going to go from judges into the kings. At a certain point here, there's a bunch of things that happen that make the people more interested in monarchy as a government institution. And a lot of that has to do with the conflicts that are going on among their neighbors and, and between them and their neighbors, I should say. So the people end up saying they want to have a king and Saul is chosen. Now there's some discussion here that we'll go into about what does it mean that Saul is chosen? You know, some of the text talks about it being God that chose Saul. Some of it talks about the people. And so there is a little bit of tension between these two perspectives in the text. Then as Saul progresses within his monarchy, he loses favor with the Lord. And then in a certain sense with the people as well, the people start favoring David. And again, there's multiple reasons for this and reasons given in the text for why this is the case. We're going to get the very iconic story of David and Goliath and how foundational this is both to David's claim to the legitimacy of his reign and then how it's used to legitimize other sorts of narratives that come on along after that. In particular, one of the things that we've alluded to previously is how this narrative is woven into and alluded to by Nephi in the Book of Mormon. Now, he doesn't mention David or Goliath by name in his narrative, but the words and phrases and imagery that are used are definitely Davidic, right? And in in their origin. And so there's some interesting analysis that can happen there. This goes along to the point that the, the people and the Lord sort of reject Saul and choose David. And then this jealousy and and hatred and tension between Saul and David arises. We see David act in a preferable, humble way, and this sort of highlights his 
fitness and, and legitimacy as the king. The book is going to end with, with Saul's death, which sets the stage for, for David actually assuming the monarchy. There's, there's some historical things going on here that we can go into a little bit, but a lot of this is political and theological, even more so than, than some of the other things we've discussed in past books about history, like in Joshua and Judges. So <clears throat> sort of to start off here, I'm going to pick up a few things from the first seven chapters that, that we didn't quite get to last time. And that was that we have this incident in chapters four through six, which is the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. That's a fun story. Yeah. The interesting thing about this is that, you know, this really shouldn't have happened, right? Like if this is the the Ark of the Covenant, the abode of God, the presence of God, how is it that it was possible that this happened at all? And so there's all kinds of rationale given for this, that the people having having lost faith and and not really obeying the commandments, things like that. And ultimately, the Ark, when it's taken to these other cities, ends up defeating their gods, right? <laughs> in and of its own, in its own right, in its own way. And and finds its way back to to the Israelites. And and this, you know, elicits their repentance and and return to the Lord and Samuel kind of leads that out. There's an interesting thing that happens here, and I think it's of particular interest maybe to not necessarily Latter-day Saints, but we have this song that we sing sometimes, Come Thou Fount. And there's this line in the song that says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. And I'm not sure that people that sing that song in general know what the illusion is. I don't. Yeah, what, what is an Ebenezer, right? I don't, even, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I know the song. This is like an obscure reference for me. Oh, really? Oh, I'm no, kidding. This is, I know uh, the song. I just don't okay, know. Okay, okay. I was hoping you were kidding. I don't know the line. I just can't believe you know this line. <laughs> you know, it's just listening to a lot of Motab, I guess. Tabernacle mm. Choir at, at Temple Square. Is that correct? For me, you know, having grown up in Venezuela, we tended to sing the same songs over and over again. I find that, you know, back in the States here, that there's just so many songs that we sing that I just don't really get to know any of them. I got to know all of the songs we sang in Venezuela by heart, <laughs> which I think is stupendous. I mean, let's say you end up, I don't know, like a Vietnamese prisoner of war in some hole in the ground. You have that with you, you know? Yeah. 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 I can see that. Yeah. I mean, growing up in the church and hearing this all the time, I definitely have a lot of that floating around in my head. Well, you've got primary songs. Right, exactly. I didn't get those. Not until I had kids. So this is uh, an allusion to this scripture here. We've got chapter 7, verse 12, and Samuel raises an Ebenezer. This is the, the word stone of help. Mm. And this is a, a monument to the Lord for him giving them help thus far. He says, you know, the song says, hither by thy help I've come. And the idea is, you know, we have come this far with the help of the Lord, we can keep going. And so I, I just, I, I thought I'd pick that out just because this is a phrase that we use in the song that's a very popular song that we often don't, I think it's not well known what it's alluding to, what scripture it's alluding to. So right here, verse 12 of chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, this is what it's what that song is alluding to. So tell us the hymn number so we can go to our hymnals and write this down, <laughs> write down the reference. 
oh, you're going to love this. It's actually not in the hymn book. It was pre-1985. They took it out. Wait, what's the point of mentioning this? <laughs> <laughs> because it is still very commonly sung. And it's a mm. popular uh, tabernacle choir song. Okay. And, and people will sing it in sacrament meeting and stuff like that. But it's not in our hymnal at the moment. I see. I don't know. You know, they're working on a new hymnal. It's possible. That's right. It's supposed to it change in. again. Yeah. Gone will be the nationalistic uh, songs that don't belong <laughs> Maybe. in the first place. No, I'm, Maybe. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you're right because it's going to be more international. Another interesting little tidbit here, and it actually comes out later in the book. And so I'm going to bring it up here and we probably won't bring it up later. But there's a few times in 1 Samuel, and we see this in other books as well, where there is a an altar built. And it, I say randomly because, you know, Samuel builds an altar in Ramah and then and then Saul builds an altar at another point to, to worship. And in Deuteronomy, this is explicitly condemned by Moses, right? Moses says, you're not, you, you can't do this outside of Jerusalem or outside of the tabernacle. Those are the only altars that are supposed to be built. And so here we have this remnant, this little pieces that we get in these verses of a pre- Deuteronomist worship practice. Okay, remember we talked about going back to the episode on Deuteronomy, where in the seventh century BC there were lots of religious form reforms happening that changed the religious rites and what was acceptable and not. And that's when the book of Deuteronomy was compiled and and written. And so the speech of Moses in that book goes back and revises reforms earlier commandments to say no things have to be done in a particular way right but here we have remnants of accounts where people are still building altars that are contrary to deuteronomical deuteronomical i don't know if i'm saying that right deuteronomical deuteronomical <laughs> deuteronomical that's good there you go. deuteronomical you know imperatives so yeah this is a really good point ben and it's important to keep in mind too that this is deuteron <laughs> Deuteronomist history we're reading, right? History and, and scare quotes. Deuteronomist history we're reading. We can call it Deuteronomist history. It's their sacred history, right? So yes. We can, we can call it history as long as we say Deuteronom. If, if we can say Deuteronom, Deuteronomical. Yeah. So, so that means that what what the Deuteronomists are pushing as orthodox, and what they're pointing out as unorthodox is actually not quite the case. Not yet. Yeah. It, it, right. So so that which they tell us is unorthodox that we see happening left and right is actually orthodox at the time. And yeah. they're writing this to to make it unorthodox. This is the creation of orthodoxy and, and, and of course, heresy at the same time. Yeah. This is notwithstanding 1 Samuel being considered a Deuteronomist historical text, but it's not purely... Deuteronomist. There, there's at least two or three sources that we're we're looking at throughout this book, and we're going to get into those when we talk about you know David and Goliath as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Are you you're still in the first seven chapters, right? I am. I'm about to get to chapter eight because yeah, yeah, I want to mention something eight. from chapter twelve real quick because you mentioned the altar, Gideon, chapter twelve. The whole, I think one of the points, the main points, because sometimes you ask yourself, you read these stories and you think, why, why this story? What's the point of this story? Right? Why is this? Why has this come down to me? Why is this sitting here in front of me? And so sometimes the the, the scholars can be helpful. And one of the things that that's pointed out in my study Bible is that 
one of the main reasons to include the story of Gideon is because of the altar that was built. Hmm. So don't, yeah, don't miss those details, especially in, in this context. Are you talking about chapter 12 of Judges? Is it chapter 12 of Judges? Well, if you're talking about Gideon. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. Yeah, we're, we're here talking okay. about, we're not talking about Judges, but I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You can bring up Judges. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, this is an overarching point. This is another example, right? For many this. of these, yeah, many of these books, yeah. I just, it showed up a couple times in this book. So I thought, hey, this is another good time to bring this up. This this altar thing is just, you know, it's it's a red flag right in the middle of yeah. everything that says, hey, something's not, you know, something's not quite congruous here. Yeah, so there you go. So case in point, right? The example I brought up, not even from this week's reading, but it just illustrates the point. Yeah. So, you know, talking about sources here, the, the Deuteronomist sources are in in First Samuel, their general attitude is going to be suspicious of the establishment of monarchy. And that's what we get out of chapter eight. Okay. Chapter eight is this really this great discourse narrative about the the risks of monarchy. Yeah. And on top of that, it's it's this theological treatise also on how the Lord deals with his people, which is quite profound. And, and we we have for many years in, in podcasting, Shiloh and I have used this principle that we've called, we've deemed the Samuel principle. Maybe we didn't deem it that, we just took it up from somebody. And which basically the idea here is that just because the Lord gives his people a particular standard does not imply that that standard is the celestial standard or the highest standard or the you know the standard of Zion. The Lord can give his people a law or a standard that is less than the ideal. And then the people can take that standard and deem it, oh, this is from God this must be God's will. But chapter eight explains, actually, you know, ideally God would have you do it this way, but because you are not prepared or not willing to do it that way, there's this other way. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I talked to Shiloh today. He was driving back from Logan, Utah, from the Mormon Historical, uh, Mormon History Association conference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he mentioned that I told him we're covering Samuel tonight and he said, oh, the Samuel principle. It, and, and he said there was something else he, I didn't hear back from. I told him when he got home, he should check his scriptures. He said there was something that there's a cross reference that he has written down. Darn it. I'll have to see if I can get that in time for study group. <laughs> well, I'm, we brought this up in particular when we did Doctrine and Covenants section 98, because we talked about how the Lord gave the people this standard of defense and, and war and that you know, whenever the Lord gives a standard, it's not necessarily a, a celestial standard. It, it depends more on what the people are prepared and willing to receive. Yeah, you know, this is something that I learned. I personally learned from Shiloh, the idea that, you know, he helped me to see that in the Book of Mormon, not a celestial standard in the behavior of, of the the great men, undoubtedly, that they yeah. were, but not celestial, right? Yeah. That he showed me that God takes the people wherever they are. I say the people, I'm one of them. He takes us (laughs) wherever we are and he brings us up a little bit higher. He doesn't, he can't take me from, Ben, he can't take me from where I am to a celestial level in one go. It's just not going to happen. 
right? That's that that takes a lot of pounds of thrust. You know, it's, he's going to take me just a little bit higher than where I am. Yeah, the next step. Yeah, and it's not like he doesn't have the pounds of thrust. It's just I can't handle it. I wouldn't be able to handle the G's, right? <laughs> yeah. So chapter eight is largely you know, Deuteronomist in nature in the way that it approaches monarchy and and the theology of this and. Some of that can be seen in the warnings that it gives about what the monarchy will do because the Deuteronomists were very critical of the way that the monarchy was doing things. And especially post-exile, this is this is sort of written back into the history and the texts as reasons why they lost it, right? The reasons why Israel was taken into bondage and into exile. Sorry, meaning you're going to say that all these things they said in this book will happen if you have a king. Yes. They've actually already happened, and that's why they're writing this back this way, right? Correct. Yeah. And then we see that right away in some ways with Saul. We see some of this already happening. Oh, yeah. There is a, a book called Fight by Preston Sprinkle that yeah. brings up some of these topics he goes into the Israelite tradition of of government and and warfare and how it was pre monarchical times and that it was more a militia and volunteer based, no taxation. But then, as they moved into the monarchy, you had more and more centralization of this power. You had conscription. Saul forms a professional army, not the volunteer militia anymore. And so, there's this progression in that direction away from the way that they, you know, had operated before. And so, uh, you know, not to get too much into that, but that that would be, you know, a good source for people to take a look at as a primer in in how this sort of historically and also theologically developed within the text of the people moving in in this direction away from, you know, a more primitive idea of organizing militarily. You know, you brought up the taxation thing and you know we're not going to revert to our hashtag taxation is theft anarchist yeah. <laughs> libertarian anarchist whatever days but so we won't spend too much time on this but i did, did occur to me in reading this that this doesn't just apply to monarchy right this this is really it's something that applies in modern nation states today too right it's really the taxation right it's the, the idea that the king is going to take from you and give to his friends and of course there's defense and we know how big the budget is for that in the United States, bigger than all the other countries of the world combined and bigger than anything else we spend on, despite the fact that people don't have drinking water. And it's not even, yeah. it doesn't even take just, you know, like even a small percentage of that budget to to make sure that everybody has clean drinking water. in the. But, you know, it's it's something that I think applies across the board when there's that kind of taxation. We haven't even gotten to Solomon yet. You mentioned Saul. I mean, where are we going with this? You're talking about uh, a coming king who's going to build monuments to himself that he claims are to, to God on the backs of slaves, and he's going to be an arms dealer. Right? He's going to deal yeah. in the F-16s of the day, which are chariots, buying and selling them. Iron, yeah, iron chariots. Yeah, this is where the where the Israelites lose the plot, as as Rob Bell puts it in his book, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, right? That he brings this point out. That here God saved you from being slaves in Egypt, building monuments to empire. And now you're going to be an empire and have slaves and build monuments to empire? What's going on? Yeah. So wrong son, wrong son of David, 
no Solomon, right? Now we're looking for Jesus at this point. Yeah. Yeah, there's so there's conflicting attitudes towards monarchy. You you brought up Christopher that it's not it's not so much like even politically it's not so much about monarchy itself being inherently evil. It's even in chapter 8 it's more about the attitude that the people are displaying that it's a demonstration of their lack of faith in the Lord to be their protector. And and this is why it becomes so important in some of the later accounts particularly about David because what it is what it goes and does is show that David does depend on the Lord for protection not on his own strength. That's why everything happens the way it does with Goliath, right? And that's why when David goes and he has the two chances to kill Saul, which may have been just one, just two different accounts, right? But he has these chances to kill Saul and he doesn't because he says, no, this is the Lord's anointed and I'm not going to to take that vengeance, right? And so there's all of these examples in here of how David is supposedly that that ideal ruler despite the the skepticism towards monarchy of the Deuteronomist tradition. David is seen as, well, yes, that may be true, but David is a good king, right? And so so it's okay because David is is a good king. So a lot of this is you, you might call it David propaganda, but sure. for better for better or for worse, it, it is showing the character of David as as legitimate, you know, God ordained ruler, the actual Messiah, the one who is anointed by God through Samuel to be the king. I think it's worth raising a question and answering it, and that is why do the Deuteronomists have a problem with monarchy? And what what would they prefer, really, is the question. And the answer is they're priests, and they would prefer priestly role. That's what this is about. Yeah. And so there are also in this account is is the talk about sort of the the loss of the, the priestly rule, right? And the idea here is the people say many times, hey, your sons don't follow after you. So they're talking to Samuel and they're saying, your sons aren't aren't righteous. They're not following in your ways, implying that there is some sort of, you know, what's the word? Implying that there is some sort of heredity to this succession. And this came up with Eli before Samuel, right? They said his sons were, were wicked and so they couldn't follow them. And so God had to raise up another prophet. And then the people say, well, Samuel, your sons are wicked. We can't follow after them. You know, the idea before this wasn't that there was heredity involved with the judges in succession, but it starts becoming the case with with Eli and Samuel. And so it could be that, you know, sort of the Deuteronomist tradition is saying, hey, we need to go back to priestly prophetic rule, but it needs to maybe or maybe not necessarily be, you know, based on on heredity so is there maybe a third source ben and what would be that point of view so there could be a third view here and it's sort of a nuance i would say to the view of monarchy the nuance would be something like yes god chose saul and david to be kings but the real reason that they became king was because of their own personal virtues. You know, Saul has great stature. 
He's a great leader. He has great military prowess. David, sort of in contrast to that, in some ways, is is more humble than Saul. He's not so great in stature, but he still has that military prowess. And so, you know, there could be some nuance to that there that might be a little bit more of a between-the-lines historical recounting of the fact that, well, these people became kings because of their military success, and that is sort of the historical way that these things happen. You have a leader or a general that is so successful militarily that the people anoint them king or or proclaim them king. You know, I'm thinking Julius Caesar, right? So yeah, that shows us that that God chose him. Exactly. So it's kind of a nuance on that. Yeah. 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 So okay. So then, if I'm reading First Samuel, which I did. And I feel like, wait a minute, there, it's not just contradictions. It's, I got this sense of anxiety reading it. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> this text, you know? Who am I supposed to believe? Yeah. It's, it's no wonder, right? If you have, these are competing narratives. They're contradictory yeah. competing narratives. And so it's no, it's no wonder. And then, of course, the other thing that's confusing, if not disconcerting, is here we go again with Balin and, and, and Astarte, right? Mm-hmm. Again, are they there or are they not there? Are they gone or are they not gone? And the answer is they're there. They're not gone. And this is still happening. That could be from a priestly source in particular that's pointing those things out, you know, as 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 pointing at that, hey, you didn't you didn't worship in the right way. And so that's why all of this stuff happened. Yeah. So we have a lot of rivalry going on between i'm skipping over goliath to see how far into this you want to go because i know we're going to spend some time on david and goliath yeah so after that we have a lot of saul and david in competition if not in contradiction again what do you want to do with the rest of the the chapter the book sorry yeah so a couple things that we want to go over with david and saul is is just to show sort of the decline of Saul and the rise of David. And these are all based on Saul's increasing madness or what the text calls an evil spirit from the Lord. And then Joseph Smith translation says, it's not, it's an evil spirit, not of the Lord, right? It's just insert a not in there. It's not from the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's, is still theologically better than an evil spirit from the Lord. Right? Sure. I mean, again, you don't, <laughs> Joseph Smith translation, he doesn't, he's not reading the original. That's not what this means. Right, right. Yeah. He's giving exegesis, an interpretation of the text. And for his time, it's a better understanding of what's going on with Saul than the understanding that the ancients had. Yeah, you can't theologically attribute that. In in our time, we might just straight up call this mental illness you know, sure. that, that Saul is is descending into. And this can there can be multiple causes of this, but the text shows it as extreme jealousy of David because mm. of David's success and because of the people's praise of David. You know, it says Saul slays thousands and David is ten thousands. You know, David is constantly put. And so there's this tension between Saul and David, sort of the intermediary of Jonathan, who's Saul's son, but David's best friend. Stuff goes on there. And I think that ultimately what it's trying to show here is that Saul has lost the favor of the Lord 
and it's really David who's favored. And to show that David is favored, we're going to give you all of these stories, all of these examples where David could have usurped the throne. He had every right to, but he respects the institution of monarchy. He respects the Lord anointing the person, and he's humble and he's wise. And so it, it, all of these stories are showing David's character and his fitness to be king and also trying to push the message that David didn't usurp the throne, right? The last thing you want when you get a new king is for people to think that he usurped the throne. This is going to lead to civil war. And so a lot of this is is probably stories explaining how David really did everything he could to not be king, right? But ultimately, that's what was supposed to be. And so David became king. He's the reluctant monarch, right? Yeah. One more point I want to bring up just about that chapter eight. And that was, and and maybe we talked about this a, a little bit, but it was the people come and they say, we want to be like other nations. And so this is a very, you know, principal problem that's cited in the text is that the people have a desire to be like other nations. This is opposed to the Lord's desire that Israel be a special people, not like other nations. Right? Remember when in Leviticus particularly, the people are given all of these ordinances and rites and rituals, and mo- many times the rationale is because it's not like what the other people do. You're doing this because it's different. You need to be a set apart, a peculiar people, different from others. And here, when the people are coming and saying, we want to be like other nations, we want a king who goes out in front of us to battle and will judge us. This is a rejection of the the Lord's call that they become a different, set apart, special, peculiar people. Should we talk about David and Goliath then? Yeah, I think it's probably time to talk about David and Goliath. All right. Christopher, why don't you go We for may it? need half an hour to go into this, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, the first thing that occurs to me to mention about David and Goliath, I meant to ask my kids about this and I forgot. It's too late now. It's really bugging me that I don't remember, that I can't say with certainty, but I don't think this is in the Iliad of Homer. But it is in the film Troy that is based on the Iliad of Homer. And it wouldn't be the only thing in the film that isn't in the book. That's how it goes. But at the beginning of the film, there's a standoff between two armies. And this is the David and Goliath story works the same way. And instead of the two armies fighting, it is proposed that the best man from each army fight the best man from the other army. The champions. The champions, right? And then whoever wins, that's it, right? If our guy wins we win. If your guy wins, you win. So I know that's in the film, Troy. I don't think it's in the Iliad. It really bugs me that I can't remember for sure. Mm -hmm. I'd have to reread it. There are some significant differences between the film and the conspicuously, conspicuously absent in the film are the gods. I've always mentioned on this podcast that in, in antiquity, God is doing everything. And so if something happened, God made it happen. Which is why, again, if if Saul is winning battles, God's the one who's doing that. And so this tells us that Saul should be king. So so that's how the story begins. And then you go into, it's a very familiar story, right? David has, is going to go up against Goliath. Goliath is huge. 
if you some of the texts say he's 10 feet tall others six feet something which is probably more realistic yeah but i mean but the idea is he's 10 feet tall right that's the idea this is right. 10, <laughs> 10 foot tall guy he's a giant and and david's going to go up against him and he's got this giant sword and we hear all about his his armor and what it covers it's interesting again back at the beginning of this year when we covered when we talked about all kinds of things about the Bible in the, in the introductory podcast that we did, one of the things I mentioned is the difference between speaking of the Iliad and the Bible, the difference in the way that you know Hebrew and Greek thought work. Our thought is Greek thought; uh, it's not Hebrew thought. And so it doesn't. If this had been the Iliad, we would have heard about how shiny the armor is. We would have known what color it was and what what was what was what illustrations were on it. You know what was engraven in it. We don't get any of that. What we get from Hebrew thought is its function. We get exactly what it covers, and that's basically everything but the guy's forehead, right? So, so what's going to happen? Yeah. David first he gets what is it? Saul's armor. He puts on Saul's armor, and he's got Saul's sword. Am I right? Yeah. Well, it turns out the armor's too heavy for him. He can't. He, you know, right. He's not so use he it. gets all that on, and he can't even walk. He's not used to yeah. this. It's too heavy. So he says, "No, I'm just going to go with my staff." And my slingshot. He's a he's a shepherd. He's done this before. He says, yeah, you know, he's told you can't do this. He says, look, I've killed bears. I've killed lions. I got this. But more importantly than his experience and his and his weapon, which, by the way, come on. I mean, this is like having a gun and a sword fight, right? <laughs> let's let's be fair here. It's not like he has the inferior weapon, really. I mean, he can toss those stones pretty fast. You know, pretty the velocity is going to be pretty high, and he indeed does, and he he brings him down with one stone to the head, and then he cuts off his head. He takes his sword, unsheaths it, cuts off his head, and takes his armor to himself. And the thing, you know, we can if there's something you want to comment on here, Ben, let's go into that first. But the thing that stands out is how alike the story of Nephi and Laban is to this story, and I want to go into that. Right. But is there anything you want to say about the story as it is in First Samuel first? So a couple details that are are interesting to point out here is that he goes with the staff and the sling, but the sling is kind of a hidden weapon. And and Goliath sees that he has a staff and he thinks it's a joke, right? You know, not only is this a little kid, but he's just coming out to me with a stick. He just calls it a stick. And he doesn't know that that David has this sling or that, you know, he's any good with it in any case. And so there's that. Now, after we, you're going to go into how there's two different accounts going on here that talk about David taking on Goliath and they're woven together as they do in this. But one of them kind of implies that he's killed with the sling and the other implies that no, he's just knocked down and he actually kills him with the sword when he chops off his head right. but in either case he has to use goliath's sword to do it right and this is where yeah. Nephi kind of comes in he does it with goliath's sword and not only that he takes the sword afterwards and then this sword comes up later in the story and and so this sword is important now one of the reasons this sword is important and again you might get into this with the nephi stuff is that historically speaking we're well into the Iron Age, okay? Remember, like, when they're coming into the land, this is the end of the Bronze Age. The invasion of the Sea Peoples marks the end of the Bronze Age. We're moving into the Iron Age. And the Philistines 
were actually a formidable enemy because they controlled the metalworking, you know, blacksmithing for for lack of a better term of the area, the iron. And so they they had better weapons. Now the Israelites could get these weapons sometimes, but they didn't have they didn't all have direct access to them. It was the Philistines that had the metalworking industry. And so Goliath's sword would have been a superior sword, most likely to anything that David would have gotten. So it makes sense that he would have taken that and kept it because it's very valuable. Now, you know, that that speaks to, to Nephi's story as well. It does. It really does. So there's an article from RSC. I think it's called Nephi and Goliath, isn't it? I want to go into, yeah, that's, into yeah. some of that. So, But before we do that, let's go into this thing that you mentioned, that there are two different stories, two different versions of the familiar story. When I say the familiar story, that's chapter 17. And this is one of those instances where we're, you know, just when you think you're a good reader, right? Yeah. This keeps happening to me. And I spend a lot of time working on being a good reader. And I take that very, very seriously. And I especially have to do that when it comes to this podcast. And so thankfully, there are better readers than, than me and you, Ben. And you know, they've, they've spent more time with this text. I, I can't imagine I'll be spending, I won't be spending more time with it myself. I've, I've come to, as I've come to know it better, I've come to love it more. So the first version of the story, it's kind of interesting how these are woven. You say they're woven together. A lot of times they're woven together sort of, there is a back and forth to this, but it's interesting how this works because the first version is from verse 1 through 11 and then it skips and it's 32 through 54 and then the second version is verses 12 through 31 then it skips to 55 through 58 and when you say first and second are you also implying that one is older than the other like an like an older account yes that's a really good question okay that's a really good question the second account was added so late that it is completely missing from the oldest greek manuscripts oh wow yeah so there's going to be an implication there too with the Nephi and, and, and Laban story. We can come back to that. Okay, so let's look at this Nephi and Laban thing. So in the article from RSC, it's a great article for going into a sort of, you know, some rhetoric, some literary illusions, exegesis. You, you can learn a lot from this article. I recommend listeners download it and read it. Again, it's Nephi and Goliath. And in the article, Nephi and Goliath, we find out first what illusion is. And so I thought we'd go into that a little bit. So what is an illusion? So you're reading text A, and text A makes some kind of reference to another text B. And so the question is, is Nephi, in telling the story of the killing of Laban, alluding to the story of David and Goliath? How would we know this? How would we find out? We have to look for evidences. These are ancient memes. That's right. <laughs> you know, you're quoting that that common movie or TV show. And when you say it, everybody knows what you're talking about. You know, they get the reference. Exactly. But if you don't, you don't know it, you don't know it. You're kind of like looking around like, I don't, yeah, everybody's laughing. I don't know why you're laughing. Yeah. And you're missing the point, right? This is important because if we want to read the text correctly and there's an illusion in it, a literary illusion, and this is an intentional rhetorical move on the part of the author then we're missing authorial intent in reading it and missing the illusion, right? So that's going to be important. So what are the evidences we can look for? First, quotes. You mentioned quotes, Ben. Quotes are going to be unlikely because why? Well, we have translation differences. We have textual transmission problems. We have 
the different versions of the text. There's all these different reasons why we're probably not going to see direct quotes. Skipping ahead to the last one, there could just be wording that's similar. That's going to be the, so the first one, the quotes is going to be unlikely. Wording is going to be the weakest evidence. Why? Well, look, I mean, Joseph Smith got it for this. In the Book of Mormon, there are a couple of turns of phrases that are Shakespearean. Mm -hmm. And so people have made fun. They say, this cannot be an ancient document. It has Shakespearean English. Well, the English comes from Joseph Smith. Whether the document is ancient or not, regardless of that. Well, the Book of Mormon we have isn't an ancient document. Right? Exactly. Like it's, it's a 19th century document. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the point, right? That's Joseph Smith's English. So anyone who read Shakespeare can have Shakespeare show up in their language. And so that's going to be weaker evidence. That's when you have two, you know, two or three words that are the same, not exact quote. So what are the other evidences we can look for? The two strongest. Number one, and the most and the strongest is going to be structural parallelisms. If the texts have the same events in the same order, that's that's really good evidence for an illusion, a, tech, a literary illusion. And secondly, thematic parallelism. So if the themes are parallel, when I say thematic, the themes I'm talking about, yes, they're in this story, but they sort of touch outside to the wider story of the Book of Mormon or the wider story of the Bible, as it were, which is something that, again, I'm always bringing up on the podcast that we should keep in mind is what's the big picture here? Why are we reading this story? It's easy to get lost in the trees and, and lose the forest for the trees, right? So let's look at these two stories and see how they are similar. Ben, you know the story from the Book of Mormon. How does it compare yeah. to to the story and, and story? How does it compare to the uh, David and Goliath story? We can go. We can go step by step, side by side here. Yeah, I mean that that might be helpful. Let, let's go through this first. Okay, the first thing. Yeah. In the beginning, we get from the story of in the Bible when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, so everybody's afraid of this guy. Laman and Lemuel again began to murmur, the Book of Mormon reads, saying, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command 50, yea, even he can slay 50. Then why not us? So we get introduced to the antagonist, which is either Goliath or Laban, and then we get how other people react to him. They're afraid. And then we get the protagonist. We get introduced to the protagonist, which is going to be David or Nephi, as the case may be. And they're not afraid. Why? Because they have past experience of being delivered by the Lord. And they fully expect that they will be delivered by the Lord in this case. And so they're willing to go up against the, the rival, up against either David or, or Goliath, Goliath uh, sorry, Goliath or Laban. Do you want to take us through this step by step? Well, I actually think you should. I, if you, I mean, we'll, we'll edit this part out, but I think if you give sort of the David Goliath next part in it, I can probably fill in how that relates to the Nephi story. So both of these protagonists cite miracles as the basis for their faith. Right? David has the, the examples from his own life and Nephi cites one from, from the history of Israel and then one from his own life. And then they conclude, just as God performed those miracles, he's going to deliver us from our antagonist today. And so these are really close thematic parallels in both accounts. And then we also get a series of verbal parallels, phrases in the Old Testament account are the Lord that delivered me and he will deliver me are, are close to Nephi as the Lord is able to deliver us. 
Then there's a second thematic parallel. David says, Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and the uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them. So this is a prophetic suggestion that what happened to the lion and the bear is also going to happen to Goliath. In Nephi's account, in parallel fashion, he, sa- he speaks of a similar fate that's awaiting Laban. He says, the Lord is able to deliver us even as our father. So this is beforehand, right? Before going into the battle. The Lord is able to deliver us even as our fathers and to destroy Laban even as the Egyptians. So what's interesting about this Book of Mormon phrase is that it actually foreshadows Laban's death, right? So Nephi has already determined that that Laban will be destroyed as the Egyptians. So this is a lot more explicit than the reference to, to Laban's death that's given earlier by the angel in 1 Nephi 3.29. So the point is clear, right? Just as in the historical exodus, Nephi's point is God will help fight our battles for us. The parting of the sea that he mentions is important too because it shows that God is destroying the enemies while they're leaving for the promised land. So again, this is this is Nephi and his family leaving the promised land. This is their own exodus. And the exodus is a very prominent theme in this story. It's how, I mean, it's how Laban and Lemuel even go with them. It's like, hey, you know, if he can, if God could do this for us in Egypt, he can do this thing for us now, right? And they say, oh, okay, and then they're willing to go. So in the next section in both of the texts, we have a confrontation between the antagonist and the protagonist. And there's a, a point that maybe may even be a quote, right? It's hard to say if it's a quote. And it's the phrase, deliver thee into mine hand. So it's also a thematic parallel. Nephi's account can also have something to do with Exodus 21, 13, right? But in both stories, the protagonist is claiming that God will deliver the antagonist into his hands. Another parallel, again, thematic, David claims he's killing Goliath so that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel. And in Nephi, he's saying Laban is killed so that Nephi's posterity can know the God of Israel. Hmm. Right? The whole idea that it's better than one man should perish, that a nation dwindle and perish in unbelief. So both of these stories then, they, they end with the death of the antagonist and then the subsequent removal and keeping of the armor. Not to mention the beheading, right? Yeah. And the, the sword goes away with with the victor, the, the sword of the vanquished, and the armor. And so there are really, there's these thematic parallels that are really strong, and then there are verbal parallels that are really strong too. Like David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. Whereas Nephi writes, Beheld his sword, and I drew it forth from the sheath thereof, and took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with his own sword. I mean, very, very close, right? Right. So the protagonist takes a sword from the antagonist, who is incapacitated, as in both cases, at least in one version of the story, right? Uh, and again, the question is in which the, the listener can go into these two versions of the story. I've pointed out where they start and end. And then you can ask the next question, which, which well, there are a couple of questions that come up, Ben. First question. Well, first question was, why is he making an illusion? I think we can say he is. Right? I think Nephi is making an allusion to David and Goliath. So the next question is, why? Why is he doing this? And I'm going to let you answer that question, Ben. And then the third question would be, if he's alluding to a David and Goliath story, I say a David and Goliath story, which one is it? Is it the early one or the later one? 
if yeah. it would be the later one, it would be a problem for his source being the brass plates as we understand it, right? If it's the yeah. earlier one, then it's altogether possible that there is such a source and that it would contain that story. So why is he doing this, Ben? Well, so one of the assertions we've made about uh, why Nephi is doing this, and, and others have as well, is that Nephi is trying to establish his legitimacy of rule. So it is this story is put in for Samuel. One of the main reasons we have this story about David is as a way of legitimizing his kingship, saying he is fit to be king because look at what he accomplished. Now, Ben, when I said this to that, this is what Nephi was doing to my father-in-law. He said, Nephi was not a king. <laughs> and I thought, I said, are you kidding me? Every king after him was named Nephi because he was the king. And it's interesting because it does say early in this text, you're right, right? Nephi is establishing his legit, telling and telling the story the way he tells it. He's establishing his legitimacy as a king. And we are told that he's, you know, that an angel says that he'll be ruler over his brothers and all this. But it's not actually explicitly said that he's a king, right? He is. And yet you can see how, you know, my father-in-law may not have caught that. I mean, there's so many things we miss sure. when we when we just read through these texts the way we've been accustomed to reading them. It takes close reading, careful reading to to catch some of these things. And and then some of them, honestly, I, I'm not a competent enough reader myself. By the way, literary illusion works on the competent reader. You kind of alluded to this yourself earlier, Ben, but this only works if you know the text being alluded to. Mm-hmm. And so what it does is if you do know the text, then when that text is alluded to, it comes up in your mind and works on your mind while you're reading the text that's making the illusion, such that the alluded to text interprets or helps interpret the alluding text, the one that's making the illusion. I should say it's also possible Nephi wasn't fully conscious of the way that he was telling the story of the illusions he was making it's very possible that this genre and structure of the story was so common to his culture and time that that's just how you told the story and so he may not have been a hundred percent conscious of what he was doing now he could also have been completely conscious of what he was yeah. doing and so the intention here whether he was conscious of it or not the intention can still be the same right the intention here is to tell to give a narrative i believe yes. nephi's intention was to relay a narrative to his people that he is capable of protecting them and he has the sword to do it with i mean he he talks about how he he has Laban's sword and they make swords after its manner, right? In order to contend with their brethren. And then later when Jacob comes and speaks to the people, he says, you know, you look to Nephi, my brother Nephi, who, to whom you look as a protector, right? Well, this is, this is the whole thing with messianic kingship is that they're the protector of the people that was, that was Saul, that's, that's now David. He's seen as the protector, the champion of the people. And so for Nephi to put forth this narrative, he is casting himself as the, you know, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, Nephite David. He is the prototypical king 
for the Nephites. Now, he doesn't want to call himself a king. You know, he says, I, I you know, he tells his people, you shouldn't have kings. This is almost a, a bit of a, a Deuteronomist mindset, right? Suspiciousness of kingship and monarchy, which persists throughout the Book of Mormon, right? This is a, a main theme of the Book of Mormon as well as suspiciousness or suspicion of monarchy. But notwithstanding that, you know, Nephi becomes this first king and then the subsequent kings all get named Nephi after him. So it's it's almost like, okay, well, we can have kings as long as we don't call them kings, right? <laughs> we'll just call them Nephites. They end up calling them kings later anyway. It's like, we can have kings as long as we call them presidents, Christopher, you know, as long as we call them presidents, we can have kings. <laughs> sure. Why not? And again, yeah. And, and they can tax us and they can, they can do all the things on the list that a, that a king will do that the Deuteronomists want us to worry about right. as long as they're not a king, right? Yeah. So the other way that we've looked at this story and intention of Nephi from a, from a Latter-day Peace Studies nonviolent hermeneutic is to say, if, if Nephi's intention and purpose in writing this account, and, and bear in mind that he's writing this account that we see in 1 Nephi many years later, okay? This is probably not, not too far from his death, Nephi is writing this account. He's, he's an old man when he's writing this. And he's, he's seeking to, to go back and, and revisit these events with a particular narrative and purpose in mind. And that purpose is this, to legitimize his kingship and his trust with the people. And so we can take this from, from a perspective of saying, Nephi is telling a story and he has a particular purpose and the purpose in him telling that story is not to relay the facts. Okay. His purpose in telling that story is to weave a particular narrative and trust of the people. And so we could even look at the story that Nephi is telling in first Nephi and say, it didn't actually happen that way. And so this is this has been taken uh, along with some other sorts of approaches to this difficult story that we have of the Lord commanding Nephi to slay Laban. And so one of the ways that, again, we've pr approached this is by saying, look, all we have is an account of Nephi saying that's the case. And there's all kinds of motives at play here, particularly Nephi's motive of legitimizing himself in the eyes of the people. And that's not necessarily a, a deceptive intention or you know, we might look at that as, as like a power hungry thing. You know, there may, there, there could be like a legitimate political reason that, that Nephi needs to do this. But the, the fact remains that it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion that things actually went down. Like Nephi says they went down because there are, are, various ways of looking at he has motives for not telling it necessarily the way it happened but rather telling it this way well ben since we're since we're not shying away from courting controversy i wasn't going to mention the other article but you bring up a good point so in so whether or not nephi actually killed laban now i'm going to raise that question yeah because this is a difficult question to deal with especially from a nonviolent standpoint and it shows up right at the beginning. So it's something we have to confront. So whether or not Nephi killed Laban, he's telling this story, as you've pointed out, to justify his kingship. I think you're suggesting that it's possible 
that he may not have killed him, that, that Nephi may not have killed Laban at all, and that he's telling the story to justify his kingship. Now, he could have also killed him and then told the story in this way to sure. justify his kingship, but it's possible that he didn't even kill him. And there is another article that deals with that possibility, and I don't remember the title of it. I wish I, I, wish I could. I, I tried to find it here, and I can't find it. If I think of it, I'll bring it up in study group or post it on Facebook. Do you remember any details about it? Maybe I can remember. No, I don't, other than I would have shared it with you at the same time I shared this article. It's not from David Pulsifer? I don't think so. On the myth of redemptive violence? or No, I don't think so. Okay. So I, I feel like you just put it way more succinctly than I uh, did, Christopher. Maybe we'll edit out my explanation and just keep yours, you know, like a redactor, good redactor would do. Maybe a good redactor actually keeps both, right? <laughs> well, a biblical redactor would keep both. <laughs> lest, there, lest there be some, you know, <laughs> some nuance that's missed. I mean, we can't really know which of the versions of the story is true. Is it Ben's or Chris's? You know, so let's just put them both yeah. <laughs> in there. Let people decide for themselves or or let them not even notice. Let them let them read a study Bible someday and find out that there are two versions of the story of David and Goliath in chapter 17. <laughs> sure. And they thought it was one one story. There were just a couple more points here in 1 Samuel that I think warrant a bit of attention. One are the two accounts of David sparing Saul's life. Now, these could either be actually two separate accounts or they could be two sources that are referencing or, or talking about the same occurrence. The reason I think this way isn't just because this book seems to have multiple sources in it. That seems to be a really strong reason to think, oh, if we've got two stories that are similar in the text, and we already know there's multiple sources here, that means these two stories came from different sources. But the other reason is that in the outcome of the first time that David spares Saul's life, Saul is very penitent and he says, okay, I'm not going to kill you. You know, he he does all that. And then the text kind of like moves back in the direction of Saul wanting to kill David again, you know, almost because, hey, well, we still have this other account we've got to get to. So we have to set the stage again for this other account. And so that's why I think that really we might be talking about a single instance here, maybe two. But in the second account, you know, David spares his life again. And these are, these are examples of, of David not only his mercy, generosity, but also his respect for the institution of the monarchy. You know, the last thing David wants to do is demonstrate to the people that, you know, if the king's trying to kill you, it's okay to kill the king, right? Like David doesn't want to set that precedent by any means. Yeah. Was there something else you wanted to bring up before we close? The other thing in this book that I've always liked is the story of Abigail and... I've I've had this explained before in a, in a Christological sense. And so if you read through chapter 25, this is the story of, of Abigail coming to David to essentially plead the case of her husband because David uh, gets angry and is going to go kill everybody, right? And Abigail comes out with a gift and pleads the case of her husband and says, you know, let the iniquity fall on me. David sees her as, you know, innocent, in a sense, as a good 
woman, you know, gracious. And so that persuades him to forgive or in one sense, give it to the Lord. And so what happens is the story, David says, okay, let the Lord judge. And then Nabal ends up dying anyway, you know, because the Lord judges him, right? Because that's how it works. <laughs> so, yeah. but the Lord kills him, not David. But the the point of this story, I think that, that is really profound is this act of Abigail coming out and pleading the case of someone else, not herself, someone else who has offended David and telling telling that person to put the offense upon themselves. You know, Abigail saying, put the offense on me. And this is this is a, a Christ-like thing, right? It, it, it's what Christ does. He comes to us and he says, forgive as I forgive and put the offense to me in a sense. And the idea is that when we 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 look at Christ and and try to put that offense on him that we that anger or that animosity that we feel towards our brother and we put it instead or try to direct it at Christ we may find it easier to forgive just like David was able to forgive because it was of who Abigail was and so i i think this sort of this intermediary story here brings out a lot of christological themes that can teach us about the mechanism of forgiveness and the nature of the atonement is that it is a way in which Christ pleads with us. You know, often in the scripture, it talks about him pleading before the father, but ultimately he's pleading with us to forgive, to let go of our pride and to instead follow him. Amen. Well, Ben, next week we'll be covering 2 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, and the first 16 chapters of 1 Kings. Oh, really? I thought it was just 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel and the first 16 chapters of 1 Kings. Huh, that's a lot of reading. It is. <laughs> Come follow us in reading all the text. Do it. Yeah, do it, guys. Do it. Join us. Join us for Come Follow Me study group on Sunday morning. Join us in listening to our sister podcast, Latter-day Contemplation, although it has been a couple of weeks since we've released an episode. The last episode released was an interview with LDS artist Greg Olson. Great discussion. Yeah, yeah it was a really good interview. We'll, we'll have to have, have him back on the show to talk again, along with his lovely wife. Can't wait to talk to her on the show, too. She has some interesting ideas. And then... I think we'll be releasing from two weeks ago, we had a special guest for Come Follow Me study group talking about the divine feminine. And so I think I think that's coming out this week. And we're going to be releasing that on YouTube because it's a video call, right? Yeah, that's right. So that won't be available on the regular podcast platform, just on YouTube? That's right. Okay. Yeah, although we can put a link on social media. So follow us on social media, like, subscribe, tell your friends. And if you know how to edit a podcast or are willing to learn, it's not that hard and can spend a few hours a week, we'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, uh, please donate and we'll hire someone. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, we'll continue releasing these episodes on time as best we can with minimal editing. Thank you for doing that, Ben. Thanks to Kyle Swingle. And thank you to all of the volunteers at Latter-day Peace Studies, new volunteers that have stepped up that I don't even know by name yet 
thank you all for for contributing to it. And for those of you who have contributed financially, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. For Latter-day Peace Studies, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. See you next week.